1: Boudreaux Boswell. Today's podcast is all archery. Trad, compound, arrows, broadheads, front of center, you name it. Bobby and I basically go over some of the new things we're trying to do this year. For example, he's attempting to shoot a trad bow with a thumb release and opposite-handed riser all year. And over the course of the podcast, we actually start diving into... Not only just equipment, but also some of our beliefs regarding certain theories, like the importance of FOC for compounds versus trad, starting your shot process from the beginning of your setup or once you've achieved comfortable holding a full draw, two-blade versus three-blade rod heads, the use of peep sight eliminator systems, quivalizers, turkey ups, and basically everything else that happened to find its way into the discussion. Big shout out to Arrow Hunter for helping to make this podcast possible. They are the makers of the absolute go-to hunting saddle in the Kestrel. Check out their website. Even if you've been a tree stander all your life, there might be something you're missing out on. And with that, let's jump right into the discussion. And you just got your, your riser in. I saw pictures of that. That, look, that thing looked pretty sweet. Kuyu camo? Yep. I got
0: a Tribe Halo riser. It's a 17. It's actually 18 inches, uh, but it's listed as a 17. Left-handed riser. Uh, so I put my... I got some Black Max... Uh, carbon max limbs i think is what they are uh longs so i got them slapped on there i got my my mechanics uh 4x material glove i'm just waiting to find some um cordovan leather for my tab yeah i got i got some i got some tiny hands because that's i watched joel turner's video on the making of the thumb glove and he recommended finding the smallest glove that your hand could fit in well the problem for me is i have really small hands so even the mechanics small is large on me so i'm either gonna have to um,
1: do some trimming on my thumb or i'm gonna have to buy a women's like medium and try it yeah so funny story i went through the same thing that you are going through right now like probably five or six weeks ago i was at fleet farm trying out a bunch of different leather gloves. And it seemed like the ones that fit me the best. I mean, I'd have some gloves in the men's sizes that would fit me lengthwise, but the fingers would be too fat. But some of those women's gloves, they just a really tight fit. And it's like, well, if I was going to make a thumb glove, this would probably be the best glove. And then of course you got the various thicknesses and there's Buffalo hide and deer skin and cowhide. And The Buffalo hide ones felt really nice compared to some of the other material. Some of the deer skin ones felt nice too, but I guess it's not all about how smooth it is. It's how much support it gives you underneath that cordovan
0: well yeah that's because you do
1: a, a backing
0: so there's a piece of leather between your thumb and the glove then there's the glove and then you have your face which is the cordovan leather so there's actually three pieces of material in there so there's the piece between your thumb and the glove then there's the glove material and the cordovan leather so you can adjust the thickness of your backing
1: um for kind of more support, I guess, is my understanding. So with this new left-handed riser and the limbs and the intent of being able to shoot with your thumb, have you actually had a chance yet to take any shots just to see what it's going to feel like? I know your glove isn't finished yet, but...
0: No, I haven't actually. Uh, I dinked around. When I was at the show, Tribe had some of their, um, like, youth bows or like a 25-pound bow fishing bow that's cut the risers cut for right or left-handed. I dinked around with some of those there without even a glove, given they're only 25 pounds. Um, but, I mean, it felt pretty good. And I think by the time you get some a backing and a, a cordovan face on it, I think it'll be all right. Yeah, you'll
1: probably have to build, a, build up a callus after a couple shots. Yeah, but yeah I think I mean, that's definitely be. the case. Because I tried it in my garage, just a few shots, and I had taken one of my old Bateman Cordovan tabs, the split finger one that I never use anymore. And I cut that up and just made like a thumb tab. And right. even after like a couple shots, shots started to sting a little bit and thinking, yeah, i probably have to build up a callus. Of course you got a couple extra inches of draw length. So that's, you know, six, eight pounds of extra draw weight versus what you would normally be using. So that's a bit of extra to get used to as well. Yeah.
0: Which is kind of what I'm worried about the limbs I got. I may have to go to some different limbs. Um, because i bought these i think they're 45 pound black max limbs at 28 Um, i typically draw 27 with fingers so i figure i'm gonna draw 28 and a half 29 maybe yeah that'd be my um, guy with thumb so that's gonna be uh more weight so i may go to like a, a sky ilf longbow limb maybe i may go to longbow limbs instead of recurves just to have a set of
1: both but go down to 40s instead of 45s yeah, I mean, the other option you have, too, that's super cheap and, and quick and easy is just to make a, a PVC bow that's even lighter weight. Yeah, just to help get that extra step of building up the callus. Yeah. Get a few I've extra got, reps in. I've got
0: a PVC bow running around here somewhere, and then I've got all these Osage self bows that are just, you know, not. I mean, they're center shot for the little riser that it is, so I could shoot them right or left-handed if I needed to just
1: to build up. But That would scare me. Center shot out of the the self bow. (sighs) It ain't too bad. Yeah. For the amount that I played around with it and I did not give it the whole try that it deserved. I can see how shooting with a thumb is definitely, it has its advantages for hunting for sure. From a target perspective, I think there's something to be said about the fact that you never see any high level competitive target archers shooting with a thumb. Um, granted, I think some of the rules are such that you have to shoot with fingers, but just in a little bit of playing around that I've done with it, having the arrow outside of your vision, meaning not directly under your eye, I could see how that'd be really hard to get used to. And I mean, even when Joel Turner made his video about thumb shooting on YouTube, I think he said he'd been shooting that way for like three years once he finally made that video.
0: Yeah. Before he finally said he had it mastered enough to even you know, talk about it. And that's just kind of the thing is I want to, I want to try it to see what it's like. So, you know, I want to make that transition just to see, is it that much more difficult? That is a lot more difficult, um, you know,
1: just to overall see how it's, what it's going to be like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the advantage is obviously you got the extra power stroke and you got the clean release. And so the other thing that I was kind of thinking of, at least for me, is I shoot with a fixed crawl right now because my anchor is so low that I either have to... I can't anchor high up on my face. To, so to reduce my gaps, the easiest way to do that is with a crawl. But when I was shooting with a thumb, just playing around with it, I could anchor more comfortably a lot higher on my face, which meant that I didn't really need to take that big crawl. And then because of that too, I'm getting more power stroke out of the bow. It shoots a little bit quieter. So yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of advantages potentially there for hunting.
0: That's going to be the interesting thing is I've got uh i don't know what is it three weeks four weeks till turkey season and my plan is to try to hunt with it come turkey season so as soon as my cordovan leather gets in i'm gonna start slinging some arrows and get it down and get it tuned to what i think works well and then go from there and see how my accuracy is
1: come turkey season okay so what's your what's your plan for getting that set up once you kind of build up the strength to be able to shoot that way what's your plan with arrows and then, especially for turkeys, I want to know what kind of broadheads you're using, whether it's the, the head chopper style or the regular style, and then fletchings, so, and just kind of run me through what your plan is between now and then.
0: So, my plan right now, I got to figure out, the one question I don't know is being, shooting off of a left-handed riser, Was that what is that going to do to my spine? Is that going to change the spine, or is it not? I don't think it shouldn't, theoretically, but you never know, so probably gonna go like two hundred and fifty grains minimum up front um, I'm probably gonna shoot a centaur battle axe which is a lot like these Simmons sharks okay but they make them uh um, quite a bit heavier so they're like a two and an eighth fixed uh cutting diameter single bevel i'm gonna I don't know at this point if I'm gonna go with uh two or four fletchings But I'm going to shoot the, I think they're Ozark feathers. It's their 3D Max. It's their 2.8 inch feather. It's kind of like a shield cut, but it's a low profile shield cut basically. That's my plan for now. We'll see how well that goes. Arrow wise, I don't know what arrows I'm going to shoot yet. I really want to try the um, Element Archery Storms or the Victory I think it's the VAPS maybe. One of the victories that are – they're basically a l- lightweight arrow, so I can try to get as much weight forward as possible on those arrows. The Element ones are those micro diameter? Yeah, they're um,
1: – yeah, 166 maybe. Yep, that, They're pretty uh, small. Yeah, I have those arrows. Um, so one thing I've read, and again, I haven't put this through all the paces, is that when you shoot with a thumb, it's more similar to shooting with a mechanical release. Meaning that, one, if you can set it up so that you're shooting closer to center shot, it's not going to be as critical of the arrow spine as it is when you're shooting fingers, especially if you're shooting fingers and you're set up to tune way out of center shot. So if you can get those two things together, it's probably going to be a little bit more forgiving, I would guess. And the other thing I've also heard that is, is that, of course, it's the opposite. So like when you're tuning, what you would normally expect to do to correct a certain plane you would do the opposite of because you're obviously on the other side of the riser
0: yeah basically like shooting left-handed but you're you're shooting right-handed so you got to kind of know the backwards for if you paper tune or however you tune you got to kind of know it's backwards
1: yeah backwards for me since i'm right-handed it's right for you are you going to be shooting just a generic like 18 strand string or do you have any kind of special string for that bow
0: no, I don't have a special string for it. Um, I don't even know. I think this string, when I bought it, when I bought the limbs from Three Rivers, maybe Three Rivers or no Lancaster.
1: So, what about rest? I'm shooting off the shelf, or probably going to start with shooting off the shelf. Um,
0: I'll probably I'm probably gonna stay with a clicker for now, and then I may go to like some type of uh, grip sear eventually uh but at this point i'm gonna stick with a stick with a clicker
1: i see you gotta make the the turkeys perk their heads up before you take a shot yeah suppose if that size broadhead two inch diameter you probably could aim for the head even though it's yeah. technically not a, not a guillotine style Depend,
0: depends on how accurate i am with this when all said is when all is said and done but So that's the plan for now. Um, Quiver-wise, I'm just going to stick with my hip quiver that I run for my my compound bow. Um, Really like to find some way to make a two-arrow quiver for the bow. Um, So I'm going to try to figure that out. I like to have, I don't like bow quivers unless they're minimalist. So like a single arrow or two arrows on the bow, whether it be my compound or my traditional bow, I just like to have a backup arrow right there but I don't want three, five, or seven on there. I
1: just want one or two. Um, and then a hip quiver the rest of the way. I'll have to take a picture of your, or look at that picture you sent me, your riser again. If it's got through holes cut out, I can't remember if it does. If I think it does. Okay, because if it does, I might be able to to jerry-rig something up for you. It might work. I'll show you pictures of what I'm thinking of sketched out first. but um, Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of going along a similar path of, trying to use the recurve for turkeys this year. Um, I still have that same RK one with the 50 pound recurve limbs and I'm shooting at 27 inches. So it's not quite that full 50 pounds. And one thing I've been doing is I took the clicker off cause I had a clicker on for a while. And last summer I had did a one-on-one coaching session with Arnie Mo and I was just reviewing the footage from that session and really trying to ingrain the stuff. And then I bought the book USA archery, which I think is kind of similar. It's got some of the same chapters as like the Kisik Lee book with the NTS system. And that was the same stuff that Arnie was teaching me. So I've been really trying to just focus on blank building with that stuff and really focusing on when I draw and drawing with my back and I'm drawing like lower, like I'm not just drawing right to my anchor, I'm drawing low and just setting my back tension. And then once it feels good, once it feels like I'm at that let off position, then I'm just raising up to wherever my hand lands on my face. And that's what I'm going to turn into my anchor as opposed to trying to force it into one particular spot. And when I do it right, and I got that new Yost tab, that Yost Predator tab, when I do it right, everything goes right. When I do it wrong, I either get some kind of nose slap or lip slap or something will go wrong or I'll pluck the string. But more and more, I'm starting to get some of those perfect arrows. And until I get it to a point where you know, like most of my shots are really feeling good. Then I might put that clicker back on just so that I know not necessarily using it as a trigger, but using it as a draw check. I'll probably add it back on, but that was, so I've been thinking about this using clickers or grip sears or tab sears or whatever it, in my mind, it seems like the clicker is the perfect system except for the noise that it makes and the fact that it's a string that could get caught on something because any other system you're thinking about a motion that's something different than the motion that from a form standpoint, you could be thinking of. So from a form standpoint, if you're at anchor and you're at holding and you're focusing on expansion and moving, you know, that, that spot in your tricep behind your back to get that if that's the only mov- movement you're focusing on, you shouldn't be able to also focus on something else to make a clicker go off or to make a sear go off. So, And I haven't played around a lot with the grips here or tabs here, but I'm thinking if I'm at full draw and I'm at holding, and then I start to focus on making that grips here go off, would I also then be forgetting about the thing that I'm supposed to be working on with the holding position and expansion? And obviously like the Olympic style bows, they're all focusing on that expansion to make the clicker go off. And the clicker is the same thing because it's that draw length that causes it to go off. The only thing I hate about the clicker, of course, is just that it makes that click noise. And I put, like, style strips and stuff on it, but it's still pretty audible, which I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah. For me,
0: I mean, I've I've layered it like with, like, um, black electrical tape and other things to where, I mean, it's barely audible. I feel it more in the string when it clicks than I actually can really hear it. Yeah. So I can actually feel the click come through the, the string. And to me, that's that's what triggers it but I, I completely agree with you on, you know, it being the, the best all-around system because, number one, it's a draw check and a psycho trigger, basically. So you know that you're getting to that full expansion, you know, when it clicks, and that's the psycho trigger to release compared to, you know, a, a tabs here or a grips here, you know, especially from, like, a saddle if you're hunting. You may not be in the perfect body position and be able to get that full expansion. You may feel like it is start running through your grips here, your tabs here, click, it goes off. But in all reality, you may have been a little bit short because your body's contorted in an odd angle, basically.
1: Right, exactly. I noticed the same thing when even when I was using a hang-on stand when I was hunting with my 68-inch longbow. I'd try to bend at the waist and draw back for a close shot, and the string would hit my thigh. Like, I couldn't even get back to full draw. I had to contort my body so awkwardly just to get to full draw. That was one of the things I hated about that super long bow. Um yeah, clicker makes a lot of sense. Maybe I just got to add more and more stuff to it until I can't hear it anymore. I can just feel it like there's is. <laughs> <it. laughs> just
0: wrap it in stealth strips. It'll be like an inch thick by the time you're done, but it won't make a noise.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so my plan is then once I'm at the point where my draw is consistent enough where I probably could handle a clicker again, then I'm going to dial in my arrow setup. And there's going to be one of two arrow systems that's going to work. Uh, I have a set of victory VAPs with the 95 grain stainless steel outserts inserts. They're just a little bit. That's actually like overlapping the arrow. It's mostly an insert. Um, so like not as much overlap as the Pierce Platinums, but I have that as a base system. And then the other base system that I have is I have some of the new breed shanks and 350 spine. And those are, very similar to like a standard diameter black Eagle arrow shaft. I don't remember which one it's the most similar to, but standard diameter shaft, like plus or minus 3000 straightness in the system that I have with that since it's standard diameter is the a So I can basically screw in a weighted nut on the back side of the the field tip or the broadhead or whatever you have. And then there's one portion of that insert that just stays right in the front end of the arrow. So the advantage of that is if I have one broadhead that's say 125 grains and I find that I need to add or remove tip weight, I can just increase or decrease the weight of that nut that's locking the broadhead versus having to go out and buy a whole new set of broadheads. Because with turkeys this spring, my plan is to use the Magnus bullheads. And there's not a ton of information about guys with trad using those broadheads, Obviously, most guys shooting them are shooting compounds, a lot more energy. So I've wondered, is a recurve enough energy to kill a turkey with one of those style broadheads? And I've only been able to find a couple threads online where I've been able to see guys with like basically a self-bow that have done it successfully. And if I keep my shots to like 10 or 15 yards, which I think is doable with the right setup, I think it'll be fine. I'm obviously going to do a lot of practicing. So once I get set up, I'm going to basically just stick with 125 grain points and I'll monkey around with whatever I can monkey around with to get those to tune right. And then I'm just going to add a really large set of fletchings. So I just, I'll probably just put natural wild turkey feathers on there and just start at like five, probably five inches because any longer than five and it starts to get kind of in the way of the riser and, and the rest and stuff. But I'll just keep it high profile. And that should be enough to keep those broadheads they're not moving that fast so planing shouldn't be a huge issue I'm thinking they'll probably just more be sensitive to a bad release that that was my
0: thoughts was having something that big out front I think you're going to have to be spot on with your, your release to not have any type of you know planing or anything like that um, with something that big up front I agree. They're not going fast enough to really have wind playing, but I think a, a bad release may show a little, little more
1: error in them. Yeah. So my plan is just to really be conservative on the fletching side of things. Not quite shooting a flu flu, but a ton of fletching. Um, just cause I've had some bad experiences in the past shooting turkeys with body shots with a bow. I can understand like, you know, when you have a bad shot, on a deer and it sucks and you, you get over it and you know that you can do better next time. But I've had body shots on a Turkey where I thought it was perfect, super close and just no blood, no Turkey. Don't know what happened. And that just, I like the finality of like a shotgun. And so this year I'm going back to the bow and I want that finality more so than having to try and hit a hidden softball size section and then track the bird. Right. Yeah, yeah,
0: that was kind of the one thing that was maybe holding me back from wanting to go so much FOC in the front was not necessarily wanting to blow through the turkey when I hit it. You know, having a lighter arrow that maybe (laughs) stays in the bird once I hit it. But I don't really want to have to have two arrow setups um, and start practicing, especially shooting off the left-handed riser, new this year, and then have to switch over after turkey season to a different setup. Um, you know, because my goal with this bow is to try to, you hear a lot of people talk about, you know, your eye kind of has a, a specific trajectory that it likes to see. Mm-hmm. So based off your arrow weight or your bow weight that you will shoot better with that. My goal is to try to find that with this bow. Um, shooting left hand is to try and tune to where I can figure out what arrow weight and trajectory works best with my eye. So that I can be able to have that trajectory down and not have to gap shoot, you know, as much guessing basically.
1: So you're just going to find whatever anchor works and just stick with it and then that's yeah, around I'm with your find weight for the rest of it?
0: Yep. That's my plan with this one is stick with the constant anchor, but find the, you know, arrow weight trajectory that works for me or bow weight that might influence that a little bit as well. Um, that
1: works the best. Yeah, I guess I've cheated a little bit when I try and do that the crawl. The crawl just makes everything so much easier. Cause you can just keep that anchor and you can cheat. The downside is it makes a noisier bow and you lose some of that power stroke. But I mean like for me trying to find the optimal arrow weight and trying to find like the optimal trajectory that your eye likes. I've probably gone as heavy as I think six hundred eighty grains with my bow right now, which Is super heavy for, you know, at 27 inches, I'm drawing like, what, 46 pounds, 45 pounds. I'll have to go out and measure it just to see what I'm actually shooting, but it's super heavy. And then on the light side of things, I've gone down to like 480 grains, which still isn't all that light. And so I put together a spreadsheet where I basically have like three different tabs. One tab for like my heavy hunting arrow or like if I'm shooting indoor targets at a fixed range arrow another tab for like a turkey arrow and another tab for like an ultralight 3d or like IBO shooting arrow where I'd want like a, an eight grain per pound arrow basically. Um, where I don't care if the bow, the bow is noisy. I don't care if I got to shoot a big crawl. I just want a flatter trajectory just to be able to, to hit more targets where I'm aiming a little bit less guesswork. And that, that spreadsheet gets down all the way to you know, grains per inch, static spine, IDOD, insert weight, add on weights, tip weight. I plugged in a column for FOC calculated and I plugged in a grains per pound, total arrow weight, and even like a dynamic stiffness based off of like the Stu Miller calculator. And so I'll just stare at that thing for like, it makes me feel like crazy if I actually think about like some of the things I do every now and then. (laughs) But, uh, I'll just look at that thing and just try and decide like what arrows to buy next. But it's usually for me based on the numbers and what I think is ideal. And then whatever I end up picking, I just make it work through like a different crawl or, you know, different point weight or actual differences. Once I start shooting it versus what I thought it was going to be like.
0: And for the most part, that's always what I've done. It's just kind of once I had an arrow that I was happy with the weight wise, you know, length, all that stuff, spine, I just kind of made it work and and dealt with the trajectory of it. Um, You know, kind of tried to make my eye learn that trajectory. Whereas with this, you know, starting over, starting left-hand side of the bow, I want to try to find that specific weight um, that matches my eye as best as possible with this. Because I think it's going to be such a challenge going to the left-handed bow shooting off the thumb that I kind of want to try to find that in there. But I know it's going to take a little more time to find it as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think you'll hopefully figure it out fast. (laughs) (laughs) I I think, I I think for me, it it would have taken a while that you go from systems your entire life where you're used to the arrow being in your subconscious vision on a vertical line of whatever you want to hit. And now all of a sudden you're moving that arrow off that vertical line and you got to guess not only what the elevation is, but also the windage.
0: Yeah, to me, I never really paid attention to where the arrow was. Um, Even under my eye, I've never really paid attention to the arrow. Uh, So call it instinctive, call it whatever you want to call it. You know, I've always just looked at what I wanted to hit and just drew back, got to anchor, went through my shot execution, and then shot it. I mean, yes, it's there, but I've never consciously like look down at the arrow and to reference left or right of where it needs to be. So I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know. That's the whole point of this is I don't know. Am I going to have to, to learn to gap shoot with that? Am I going to have to reference the arrow for this? I don't know.
1: Well, I think one thing was to do it. It'll probably be with a higher anchor right there. It'll probably be so much closer to your eye that you'll find it harder to ignore. kind of Yeah, I'm oh, I agree.
0: Yeah. My plans to try to use basically, you know, like the if you were to fold your thumb underneath your index finger use that you know kind of gap where your thumb and index finger is on my cheekbone basically yep it's kind of my thoughts so get it really really high so i mean i'm gonna be
1: like just above the arrow you know yes. an inch maybe so then your knuckle ends up being like right underneath your eyeball your your yeah. finger knuckle yeah
0: that's kind of the goal for right now. I, th- I feel like Joel draws his back even farther. I mean, I think I bring, he brings his back further towards his ear because um, the string, you can actually see the string sitting like behind his eye on his head, which obviously doesn't cause string contact because your thumb pushes it away from your head. Right. Um, but it, like I said, I don't know. It's just going to be a matter of getting out, getting a giant four foot by four foot target starting out at 10 yards and seeing if I can hit it at 10 yards. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Did you see that big target that I put together?
0: Yeah, seen that. That was that, the um that thing's hard to miss. Third-hand man target. Well, yeah, I don't know about that. I could probably <laughs> miss it on some bad days. So, let's talk a little bit about that real quick. That's the third-hand target skin, right? And then you st-
1: yeah. basically framed it and stuffed it. So, um tell everybody a little bit about that a little bit more. Yeah, so third-hand sells target skins He's done bag targets over the years. He has a four by four skin, which is what I have, that doesn't have anything printed on. It's just white fabric. It comes with two sheets, one for the front side, one for the back side of the target. And then he has three foot by three foot as well, and that one has printed um, spots or, or targets. I can't remember. I think it might just be like pictures of animals on it. But uh, you would take these skins, and the thing about the skins is that it's like an ideal fabric that he found to hold up for durability ability to be printed on outdoor use. So it'll hold up a lot better than just using like a tarp or something like that. And the idea is you build this big frame, you put some type of black fabric. I use landscaping fabric over the front and the back face. And then you put the skins over top of that and then you stuff that entire volume with basically textiles like old clothes, blankets, comforters, that type of thing until it's completely full and it actually does a really surprising surprisingly good job at stopping the arrows and not only that but it makes arrow removal incredibly easy like two finger removal no problem even out of a compound i haven't shot with a crossbow i don't have a crossbow but so how thick did you make it you we said four by four but how thick it's front to back is it? it's 12 inches thick which is the standard if you're building the target for like kids bows you'd probably be fine with less width or less thickness. If you're shooting a a high-speed crossbow, you might have to go a little bit thicker or pack more stuff in it. I packed close to, I think it was close to 100 pounds of actual total weight of blankets and comforters and sweatshirts and stuff like that in it. Okay. So, uh, just from previous
0: past when i've made my own bag targets if you use like denim or blue jeans cut the buttons and the zippers off of them anything metal you don't want in there yeah just
1: a worst word for wise yeah jim had told me that metal buttons you want to remove he said plastic buttons usually they'll just break when you hit them with a field point um i i just try to stick with like fleece like fleece throws fleece blankets they were like perfect so when I went to the Goodwill by my house, you buy by the pound there. So I just filled up the shopping cart with old like fleece throws and took a couple chips of that. So that's what probably 80% of my targets filled with.
0: Yeah, I wondered if you did something like, you know, where you tried to do like maybe fleece closer to the the front and then you know like maybe heavier material like heavier cotton sweatshirts to maybe like denim in the back so that way, you know, it's kind of a a layered target so it's softer towards your front with more dense material towards your back if that made a difference
1: with anything. Well, the idea is that once you shoot uh, shoot it a whole bunch in the front, you can flip it around and shoot the other side. That makes sense. The only thing about those skins with micro diameters is if you have micro diameters where the outsert has a little bit of a lip over the arrow, they do catch a little bit. I've put, like, 300 arrows in it so far with the Pierce Platinums and the VAPs, and they, you know, it it's a little bit of a grab, but it's not to the point where it's damaged the target skin at all yet.
0: So you got to kind of, you can't just pull it out smooth. You got to kind of pull it out, push it in a little bit, and then jerk it
1: out at the very end Yeah. so that it comes over the insert. Yeah, so, like, I uploaded a video on it. It's on my YouTube channel. And I shot five arrows with those Pierce Platinums with the compound, like, just right next to one another. And I took one hand and grabbed all five of those arrows and started pulling at once. And I got them all the way up to like the insert with no effort at all, all five arrows at once until it got right to the end. And then it took like two or three jerks to, to get the last few inserts out. A couple of them popped out right away.
0: Yeah, that's, for me, that's my biggest complaint with bag targets over, you know, some type of a foam target for that matter is just, you know, having that little pop at the end Not that big of a deal, Um, and then also the arrow, like when it hits a target sometimes, depending on the material, may deflect to the side, and so the side of your arrow is exposed as you're still shooting towards that same target, so you're more likely to break an arrow compared to like a foam target where they tend to go in relatively straight each
1: time. My issues with the foam targets is that they always twist. You know, if you got like a, a portable one, you can stick it out there and if you don't shoot at the dead center of the target the target twists five ten degrees every time you shoot it so then by the time you get two three shots in it all of a sudden the thing is sitting at a 45 degree angle you just need a heavier target yeah i guess so don't buy them five dollar walmart
0: styrofoam ones come on now (laughs) the last one i bought was like 80 bucks (laughs) i think i've got a it's a blim reinhardt uh, Woodland 16 or something like that. So, I mean, it's not light, but it's not heavy either, It's kind of in between. But it was a blim target, and I've about shot it to pieces now.
1: Yeah, a lot of times when I'm shooting outdoors, I go to the local range, and they have layered targets, but they get shot up so much that it's like the compound It's really risky because yeah. you can. it's really easy to just blow, th- blow right through that entire target, and then you're searching for your arrow 20, 30 yards past it. With what the recurve, of... for the most part, they're, they're layered. They're just like a block, but they're, I don't think they're as high of quality. They're not t- as tightly layered, and then, like I said, they just get shot up so much. See, ours here at the local public range are carpet,
0: so they're layers of carpet. Um, they're probably 20 inches deep, uh, 4 foot wide and 4 foot tall, and they're basically just layers of carpet that I guess they get for free from carpet shops um, and then they compress them that way so that I mean they do a pretty good job of holding up um, even with a compound bow or traditional bow but with a traditional bow if you're shooting at like 30 yards and you sometimes you can hit the uh, I don't even know what you would call it the plastic part of the carpet like the base of it Uh it won't stick it will like kick your arrow up and flip it in different directions if you hit it just right so that's the
1: biggest complaint with that See, my problem is I usually miss the target and hit the wood frame, and then I gotta dig the field point out. <laughs>
0: hey, that's that's a good thing about these. It's
1: not wood. It's all angle iron, so it just ricochets off. <laughs> I lost a couple arrows to that, but I had a shot last fall where I was shooting my compound, and one of the veins flew off mid-flight, and it sent the thing in a corkscrew, and I ended up losing the broadhead into a tree like 15 feet up. <laughs> I had
0: pretty much the same thing happen last year. Halfway to the target, at like I was like 70 yards. I lost one of them AAE max stealth vanes. So they're like two inches long with their high profile. One of them things partway came off in flight, so it acted like a giant parachute. And I center punched that angle iron, and it skipped <laughs> off and went who knows where. It made it over the berm, so hope there was nobody behind it.
1: So... Speaking of compound, are you shooting the compound at all this year? Or are you going to go 100% trad? Probably
0: going to go 100% trad this year. Might pick it up. Um, I'm not sure. As of right now, the plan is to go 100% trad. Um, even when I go back to Missouri, the plan is to go trad bow only. Um, so it will depends on what I draw for tags out here. Um, will depend on whether I really pick up the compound or not. But the plan is to go strictly left-handed trad bow this
1: year well immersion is the best way to either fail or succeed but at any rate learn yeah that's you know i if i don't kill anything i don't kill anything it happens i've you know trad hunted
0: enough that i know that's part of it so it's not that big of a deal i don't plan on drawing a, a coveted elk tag this year or once in a lifetime tag i might draw a a limited entry mule or not necessarily limited entry, a general mule deer tag,
1: um, closer to home. So we'll see. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to go to Colorado. In fact, I just put in for preference points only for Colorado. Um, I just don't think I'll have the PTO for it this year. I really wanted to go out to North Dakota and I even took a scouting trip out there for one day, just got up super early in the morning, drove out there, scouted all day and then drove back home. Um, and I it's tough because it's like if I hunt North Dakota during the rut and I make that like a week long trip, then that's like the same week that I could potentially be doing all my rut hunting in Wisconsin. It's the same week that I could be doing my firearms hunting in Minnesota. It's like, man, three states with like exactly the potential same, you know, hot dates. So been having some second thoughts on that. Um but I will probably draw one of the metro hunts this this uh year. I didn't do it last year. I did it two years ago. And so if I draw one of those metro hunts, I'll use the compound just because it's so much more accurate. I'm probably accurate enough with my recurve now that I could pass the proficiency test. But being able to pass that proficiency test isn't all that hard compared to with the compound. I can just destroy the proficiency test. And you don't want to, I don't want to take any, cho- any chances when you're like hunting in people's backyards and stuff. So... Would they let you qualify with both or try to qualify with the
0: traditional bow? And then if you don't, be like, hey, well, let me grab my compound bow and qualify with it. And only hunt
1: with the compound if you only qualify with it. The way that it works is they give you a little slip of paper and they have somebody watch you take the test. And you get five shots. And if you screw it up, you're done for the day. You got to go home. You can come back the next day. And you can keep coming back as many days as it takes you to pass it. Hmm. And there's a line on that slip of paper where it says compound or trad. So I would imagine you could probably shoot it with both and, and pass with both if you really wanted to. Right. But I am
0: I, I completely agree with you. I mean, especially doing metro hunts, urban hunts, it's better to take the most proficient method you can into an environment like that because that deer runs and dies on somebody else's property who's not a fan of the metro hunt. You know, that could spell bad news for the entire hunt all the way across the
1: board. So I'm I'm in complete agreement with it. I was just curious. Yeah, well, here's the other thing, too, is if I'm out on public land, I can pass on an 18-yard shot if it doesn't feel right with the trad bow. But if I'm in a metro hunt and I pass on an 18-yard shot, that's a shot they would have expected you to take, and that's a deer they would have expected you to kill, you know? That's Yeah, that's
0: kind of the point behind metro hunts. You know, that's that's kind of the thing about – with metro hunts, as you get people out there, yeah, they may kill one deer right off the bat, but then they start trophy hunting or hunting for bucks. The metro hunt is there for population reduction. So shoot every deer that you can, that you feel comfortable with, and you can make a good shot on. That's just
1: my two cents on it. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what they did last time I did it. I know the first year I did it, it was earn a buck the first weekend. Or not even earn a buck, it was doe only the first weekend. Meaning, if you saw a buck, you, you couldn't shoot it no matter what. You could have shot two does right before it, and the buck walks past. It's a doe only. But then the second weekend was whatever you wanted. I can't remember if they did switch it to earn a buck the last time because I know there's always a lot of people complaining, and the guys would have to pass on, like, six-pointers that would have been happy to shoot them and, and stuff like that. And it got to the point, too, where some of those areas, after years and years and years of these same metro hunts, they had buck-to-doe ratios that were so massively skewed in terms towards the buck. You'd have, like six, seven to one, uh, ratios of buck to doe, which is so goofy, but that's the way it was. So then they started to to make some changes to it.
0: Yeah. And that's the hard part is some people join the Metro hunt to be able to harvest any deer while some people join the Metro hunt to be able to harvest big bucks. Right. So, I mean, obviously you get both sides of it. You just kind of hope it balances itself out, you know, with the number of hunters.
1: Yeah. I think, the size of the bucks in some of those metro hunts, I think, has gotten a little bit overblown. I think maybe 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, that was probably the case before they got so popular. But now these hunts have been around. You know, the ones that are new, sometimes they'll, they'll still have some really giant buck potential. But the ones that have been around for a while, it's like you got guys shooting two and a half and three and a half and one and a half year old bucks every year. It's not like it's not like these, you're getting these big secluded, unhunted Giant box on these some of these yeah. metro hunts.
0: Yeah, I think I might try and either go to Idaho or to Montana to hunt whitetails this year. I got to look at the regs and see see what it's like up there. But since they're both relatively close in driving distance, um, I may try to
1: go up there and hunt whitetails just for kicks and giggles. Yeah, would you be basically like a plains hunt or like a river hunt? D-
0: yeah pretty mostly probably be more of a river hunt um for the most part depending on where i go i guess but yeah they'd be kind of more of the open
1: country river bottom yeah. kind of hunts that you see yeah that's kind of the stuff i was looking for when i scouted north dakota i just took a, a big river bottom and i just found all the public that there was and i just beelined to like 30 spots i had pre-marked just a way to speed speed scouting and only hitting the high stuff and just ignoring everything else which, if you do it like that, some of those river bottoms, it's like <laughs> the spots that are good are so obvious that everybody else knows about them, too. And even in a state that has less hunters like North Dakota versus like my home state, there was still a decent amount of hunter in the stuff that I looked at.
0: Yeah, just basically taking taking a week, seven, ten days, something like that, um, you know, running up to one of those areas and and spending some time to try to hunt,
1: hunt the river bottoms and get it figured out and see if you can get it done. Actually, one of the other reasons I'm excited to use my compound this year for the Metro hunts is that, uh, I've made those two changes. One change is that quiver being mounted in the stabilizer hole. I really want to give that a good college try because I think there's something there I've bought into, you know, the, the pros argument of it, which you get a little bit better balance with a lighter overall package. You don't have the top heavy, you don't have the side heavy as much that you have to counteract with the sidebar. And the downside of it being super long is kind of only, it's kind of negated by the fact that if you already have an arrow knocked, your arrow's that long anyway. So when guys are asking like, oh, would you use that in the saddle? It's like, well, if you have an arrow knocked in the saddle, then it's not that much different. Um, And the other thing is like ground stocking. I don't really... I'm never in scenarios where I have to stock that much, but if you were to stock without an arrow knocked the way that you set the bow down, normally with a quiver, you set your bow down in front of you and start pushing it. You got the arrows laying in the grass, basically like you got your bow on top of the arrows Unless you flip it around and you're putting your rest in the grass. But with that quiver setup and in the stabilizer, basically your arrows are on top. So your rest is facing up, your sights facing up, your arrows are all facing up. And then you can just kind of keep pushing it along. And then once you're ready to knock an arrow, you don't even have to pick the bow up. You can just take two hands, slowly pick one arrow out of that quiver, move it four inches, knock it on the string, and then you're ready to pick the bow up and shoot. So I think there are some advantages. I just got to play around with it some more. And then the other change that I made to the compound is, I added back the hindsight, which is one of those no peep systems, but I didn't remove my peep. So one thing is when you install those things, you're supposed to install them after you, or before you take your peep off. Cause it just saves you a bunch of headaches and a bunch of time initially getting it set up. But when I first had a hindsight back in like 2011, 2010, I used it with a gigantic peep site so that I wouldn't lose any light. And then I was just using it basically as like a third site. And that's the way I'm using it again now, but now I just have a standard size peep sight. So basically when I look through my sight picture, I have three rings. One is the ring of the peep sight, which is blurry, and it's the biggest circle. Then I have the ring of the sight housing, which is like a bright lime green. And then on the inside of that, I have the ring of the hindsight. So if any of those circles are out of alignment vertically, I know that my anchor is not in the right spot on my face and I can move the anchor up or down to make sure I'm in the right anchor. And then if I'm torquing the bow at all, it'll show up with the left or right because both of the hindsight and the sight housing are attached to the riser. So if the riser twists at all, it's not going to line up anymore. So theoretically it should be more forgiving of a setup. It adds like two ounces to the total bow weight, which I'm not really that concerned about. And I always liked the way that I'd shot. I don't remember why I took it off. I think it was just because I sold that bow that it was on, and I decided I just wanted to try with a, a normal peep like everybody else. But we're uh, going back to it, I think.
0: So let me play uh, devil's advocate for bo- on both of those changes. Mm-hmm. Do you think moving – so, okay, first question. Did you reduce the number – um, arrow quiver by going to the, your DIY quiverizer. Basically, did you have a five arrow on the bow, and then did you go to
1: like a three arrow, or did you stay with a five arrow quiverizer? No, I had a three before, and I have a three now. It was that Alpine Softlock, which I wasn't a huge fan of that quiver anyway, just because it was so it stuck out so far from the bow. And I thought about getting like a three arrow tight spot, but it was so much money. I was like, oh well, I'll just try <laughs> this. I'll just try this first. This will be the cheapest option. I might end up liking it. And the three-arrow Alpine Quiver, when you have it set up like Equivalizer, I'm pretty sure it's less total wind resistance than Equivalizer. So it's a little bit smaller of a profile, even though I'm only using three arrows.
0: That's kind of the second part of my question. Do you think with the hood being whatever it is, 18 inches out in front of your bow, compared to being um, alongside of your bow, do you think that's going to have a lot of effect with wind drag and wind resistance being that far away from the riser, especially in full draw.
1: Yes, I think it could. Um, and luckily I don't hunt in a lot of areas that are super windy. Even when I was out West in Colorado, that stuff that we hunt is fairly wooded. So if I was a planes guy, I might not be as open to just going ahead and slapping it right on without a ton of practice first. Um, I've heard some guys, or I guess read on the internet, guys will say like, well, the surface area is the same, whether or not it's on your bow or it's out on your your quiver, it's like, yeah, well, the surface area is the same, but the moment about the riser is a lot different because you're, if you have a normal quiver attached to your bow and that wind is hitting that hood, it's causing your bow to, to cant, one way or the other versus if you got it out in the end of the stabilizer, now it's causing your bow to like yaw, twist left and right. It's totally different, so... Yeah, I think you definitely have a a valid point that having a big hood out there could throw you off in really windy scenarios. Okay, and to the hindsight, uh, you mentioned that you
0: had three rings, basically, your peep, the hindsight, and then the uh, sight housing. Do you think that's going to be too busy of a sight picture, basically? I don't know if you're using a single pin or a three pin or a five or seven or what but do you think that's going to add complexity to your your pin system? Um, because if I remember right, you said you were going to – the hindsight goes on your 20-yard pin, even if you're shooting
1: 30 yards or 40 yards, right? So part of the answer is I've used it in the past and I liked it. So I have that to fall back on. But I guess to answer the question for, like, other people that are trying to visualize what's going on, I have a five pin sight and the hindsight is on my middle pin. If I had the hindsight set up on the top pin, which would be like my 20 yard pin, then the sight ring and the hindsight wouldn't really align anymore because the hindsight would be too high. Um, so if I have it set on my middle pin, which is the way I've always had it set up, it just kind of naturally when I come to full draw, everything just kind of falls into place is the best way to put it. And if it doesn't fall into place, I immediately know what I need to do to get it to adjust so that it is correct. It, it's hard to visualize and hard to explain, but once you actually see it and draw back and know what the sight picture looks like, it becomes a little bit more clear and it's, it simplifies it a little bit. The hardest part is getting everything set up because there's so many, you move the sight and all of a sudden you gotta move the hindsight, and then you gotta make sure you're not torquing the bow to make it, everything line up. And that initial setup takes a while. So, and that kind of goes to my, my the issue that I see with it in my head, again,
0: I've I've only seen one. I've never actually shot the bow that it was on. But, so if you're at full draw and your hindsight is basically on your 40-yard pin, assuming you have 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60-yard pins, mm-hmm. you're trying to center your hindsight based off of your 40-yard pin while also trying to check the level on your sight as well as set the 20 yard pin where it might need to go on the deer so now you're adding basically an extra um, step in there that you need to kind of verify and i know this is why a lot of people go to a single pin site is because it it kind of clears up their site picture whereas you're going kind of the opposite direction you're adding not necessarily something into the site picture but basically just another a uh, check in that site picture, a step in that site picture to verify before you go all the way through your system.
1: So yes and no. I understand what you're saying. But when you come to full draw and you hit anchor, it lines up perfectly so easily 99% of the time that it's just like, like I'm not, there's no mental step in my mind that says, okay, make sure that everything is lined up. It's just, it is, or it isn't. And the sight picture either looks right or the sight picture looks wrong. And if the sight picture looks right, I don't even worry about it. I just put the pin on and it's always on. If the sight picture looks off. Okay. Why is the sight picture off? Okay. I'm torquing the bow a little bit. It all happens. So automatically, it's almost like subconscious just cause you, you shoot it enough. Your brain figures out what it needs to do. It's really not as, as challenging as it seems and everything is so close together you know, out three feet or two feet in front of your face that your eye can see everything at once. It's like you're shooting trad and it's like you have your sight picture. You're not necessarily looking at things in your sight picture. You're not looking at the arrow, then back at the target, then you're you're just looking at your sight picture and the sight picture either looks right and you release the arrow or it doesn't. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not.
0: Okay, so yeah, it, it makes sense. I get, I get what you're saying. But let's go back and let's look at, so do you have a... A process a checklist of okay you hit full draw so I'll tell you my my thought process with my bow when I when I have my compound bow um, when I hit full draw my as soon as I hit full draw my thought process goes I look through the peep to make sure it's aligned on the site housing check I hit my level level check and then I bring it up find the pin that needs to go on that whatever the target distance is Um so this is all done in just, you know, a matter of split seconds. Once that's done, you know, if I'm shooting my um like honey two, I'll take my thumb off the safety, I'll recheck the pin, then I'll go to my bubble, and then that's when I when I verify my bubble the second time, then I go back and then that's when I go to my shot execution process. So I just begin pulling, I don't really focus on the pin at that point, I'm strictly looking at the target. Um, the pin is there, obviously, somewhere in there, and then I start executing through that shot. So do you have a step-by-step process for lining up your pin, peep,
1: hindsight in there, or do you just go off of that, it looks right or it doesn't look right? So I do, but I don't think it's as complex as your system. So basically, when I come to full draw, I'll settle my anchor, and then I'll just I'll look through... The sight picture. I'll just look at the at the target, basically, and I'll let everything kind of correct. So if, it's it, maybe the best way to put it is like if you're driving in a car and you start veering off to one side of the lane, it's like your your brain just kind of pulls you back in. It's not yeah. like there's a conscious decision. Oh crap! I'm swerving on the right side of the lane. I need to turn the steering wheel. Like it just happens that like your brain corrects it for you. And if you shoot it enough, that happens with my sight picture like the hindsight might be a little bit, I might be torquing the bow a little bit, like my, my brain just corrects it. Um, so once everything happens there, which again only takes a split second, I'll check my bubble level once and I'll adjust that level. And that's just that movement of adjusting the bubble level usually doesn't affect anything else that was there before. So if my side, if everything was at a line before, um, if I go to correct my bubble, it usually doesn't take everything out of alignment. It usually stays the same. So then once everything is aligned, I have the bubble level confirmed. Then I'll move my eyes to the target. And then I'll just let the pin, the blurry pin, you know, float to where it needs to float. And then I'll start my si- my shot execution.
0: So you re- rely more on your, I think Joel refers to it as a visual proprioception. Through the peep, with everything you don't think through the process. You just rely on that natural, okay, it looks right
1: or it doesn't look right. Yeah, and I mean, if I'm if I'm having issues, then I'll start to break it down a little bit further and really verify everything. But if I'm shooting well, it, yeah, I, I think you, you have a point that I don't try and overthink it. Once I overthink it, I almost sometimes you think about trying to fix one thing and then something else goes wrong. Whereas if I figure it out, one time on the range and I get everything dialed in that process takes a while. But once everything is dialed in, then all of a sudden it, it becomes more fluid and I don't put as much thought into the step-by-step process except for the shot execution. So my step-by-step is not so much um, setting up the site picture and verifying the peep, verifying the level. My step-by-step is more so in the back tension and the squeeze and those are kind of the things i'm thinking about once everything is set
0: okay so that and that's kind of the difference between us is yours is from the set position through the shot execution mine is from start up through shot execution so from the start as i'm getting all the way back as soon as i settle into my anchor you know as soon as i hit that back wall settle into my anchor then i look peep verify level pin back to level okay then get to the shot execution at that point
1: and if i was a target archer that's probably what i would do just because those extra checks you got the time on the line you know why not um but if i don't need to it saves me some time in a hunting situation i'm not trying to overcomplicate or to overthink it what i'm doing with my recurve right now with that nts form that i'm trying to ingrain into my head it's exactly the opposite every step from the setup and the stance I'm going through step by step are my feet set in an open stance 30 yards away I mean I've got a two by four or a two by six sitting in my garage set at the appropriate angle and I'll step up my the balls of my feet onto it to force myself to put 60 percent of the weight onto the balls of my feet as opposed to the heels and I'm going through every single part of that shot process and just trying to ingrain it with shot after shot after shot going step by step so that if I can get to the point where I can get to holding because all this thing, the, all the steps are just designed to get me to holding the same way every time. If I was ever good enough where I could get to holding with anything I wanted to do, then it's almost like the shot process begins at holding. And with a compound for me, it's more like the shot process begins at holding. So, I get everything in alignment. I don't really pay attention to what order it gets done or how it gets done. Once it's there, then I start my shot process with the recurve. It'd be nice to get to that point, but I'm not there yet. You know? Yeah. Sometimes I even like, I'll even find myself starting from, you know, grabbing the bow,
0: like, especially if I'm on the range, um, you know, I'll have my release hook to the D loop and I'll kind of lean the cam on my leg. I'll take my hand off the riser and then I'll start from there Like, okay, grab the bow, got it. Check the release, and I'll just kind of like tug on the release a little bit, make sure that it's not going to spring off for some crazy reason. Um, You know, check, and then I'll look at the target, bring the bow up, draw straight back into that, and then go through that whole process from there. You know, so sometimes I start all the way at the beginning, but I'm kind of like you, you know, it's all to get you to that that shot execution and through that shot execution the same exact way every time. And with a traditional bow – there's a lot more things in there that can go wrong through that whole entire process than with the compound bow. Cause with the compound bow, it's basically once you hit back wall, you know, you're at full draw, right? With a trad bow, there's none of that. It's all, you know, you can keep pulling all the way through, you know, three inches past what your normal draw length is if you wanted to, but.
1: And so how much of that process do you carry over from the range to when you're in a tree stand? I'm talking not necessarily trad, but like compound, you're going You're starting from the point where you're looking at your stance and your release and how you're holding the bow before you even, you know, hook up and start drawing back. When you got that deer that pops up at 15 yards that you didn't know was there and you're working to get into a shot position, how much of that actually transfers versus you just go with it in the moment of truth? Almost all of it. I mean, probably not the grabbing
0: of the bow um, because a lot of times that comes – Subconscious, especially like you said, as you look over and there's a deer already there. But once I, you know, from the point I grab it to the, when I look down to hook my release on it, if I'm using the, a hook style or a caliper, depending on whether my release is already on there from that point, all the way through, it's the same execution. It's, you know, as I'm square, I bring the bow up straight, draw back on that deer. As soon as I settle into anchor, I look for the amount of light around my, site housing in relation to my peep check my level square my level up find the pin for that distance back to the level then back to that pin safety off and then start going through the the shot execution
1: yeah i think i think we're similar i think we're we're kind of similar with the compound i think we just start at different locations in terms of what yeah. we control Cause I would like uh, to yeah. be, able, I would like to, especially with the, the fact that the compound is so repeatable with like the let off in the hard back wall. It's like, I want to be able to draw at some goofy angle. I want to be able to draw when I'm already leaned down. I want to be able to draw if I'm sitting on the ground on my knees or bent over or if I'm in a spot in stock situation, I want to be able to draw that bow. However, I need to get that bow back to full draw. If I'm sitting at full draw for 30 seconds, I want to be able to drop the bow down onto my chest so I can hold it more comfortably for a longer period of time and then raise it back up to anchor when I'm ready to shoot. I want to be able to do all these things and then once I'm ready to actually start the shot activation process, it's like the reset button gets hit and then I'm going through all the steps that I normally do on the range. And see, for a traditional bow, it's
0: I probably take every bit of it because I wish I didn't realize for the longest time, especially when I shot with my self bows, that people must... Some people, most people, according to Joel, have a hard time letting down on an animal. I probably let down on more animals than I have shot at with my traditional bow just because something in the whole process didn't feel right, didn't set right. So I let down. I can remember drawing one time, five times on one buck and never even shooting a shot at him. Because get back, get to anchor, get on him, whether the deer just. Whether well, I thought the deer was a little too jumpy at the time, or, you know, I felt something hit the string, hit my chest and let down and took my hand off the string and started all over, you know, fingers on there, draw back, get all the way back, get to anchor lean. And then just, you know, something about it didn't feel right at the time, let back down, started all over again. And then, you know, according to Joel's, a lot of people have a hard time doing that. And I was like, Oh, really? <laughs> I thought that was like a normal thing, because for me, I mean, I just, with the traditional bow, everything has to be perfect, and a lot of
1: times it's not. Yeah, and I mean, especially when you're hunting with like a south bow, where you don't want to be holding at full draw forever, because of the set of the bow, and it's like, at the same time, I, I guess I've never really watched you shoot that much, but I don't think you're like releasing as soon as you hit anchor, which I think I think that problem of not being able to let down is tied to a lot of the guys that have that automatic reaction of aiming becomes the shot process, and once the aim looks good, they, they just release the arrow, and that's, you know. I think a lot of people have that. I I started to shoot that way when I started shooting Chad, because I watched the video on YouTube where it was like shooting him like Howard Hill, and it was the guy teaching you how to shoot the swing draw, and as soon as you get to anchor, that arrow's gone, and it doesn't matter if the side picture looked good or something was wrong. It was all it was it like a timing thing almost. And once I started learning to actually hold back tension and, you know, relax and release through the shot and maintain that tension, that made a huge difference for me.
0: The guy that taught me how to build self-bows, I can remember he got target panic. And it was the funniest thing I've ever seen because he'd be four inches into his draw. And everything would look good to him, and he would release. Like, I mean, his hand is in front, well, in front of his face, and he would release. And you know, the arrow would go ten yards and hit the ground. And I was like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "I, I don't know. It just, it happened." Yeah. I, and then he went to Rick Welch's school, I guess, down in Central Arkansas, and he got over his target
1: panic there. So. I figure if I can keep it as target style as possible and as cerebral and as mental as I can make it while I'm learning, I feel like that should help me be better off in the long run versus the whole, there's kind of this idea, it seems like with Trad that it's more, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like anti-methodical, anti-science, anti, anti just like your one wing and arrow. It. Yeah, kind of. I, I don't know how to describe it more articulately than that, but that's kind of the idea yeah. that you get sometimes when you think about trad archery. And it doesn't, you, you, it's not that way for everybody. Well, you think about it, you know, trad, traditional archer used to be a lot
0: of, I don't care what the distance is. I don't look at the arrow. I just draw back and let it fly. So literally, you that's winging it as much as possible. You know, people start using rangefinders with traditional bows now. I mean, 10 years of that was – or five years ago when they were still rangefinders, that was almost unheard of. Most traditional archers kind of frowned upon it. They just guessed the distance and then kind of winged it all the way through the process. Whereas now, I mean, you're seeing guys use rangefinders for 20 to 25-yard shots, basically, to get that exact range. Um, You know, so there's not as much – there's more science into it now than what there was. Yeah. Like, well, I was listening.
1: I, I was listening to that recent push podcast with Don Trump Jr., and he was talking about guys that he would shoot with, and they'd be shooting for like ten years, and they still couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. And they're just <laughs> like, "Well, if you put something into this, like you can figure it out." They're like, "Oh no, I'm I'm just fine like this. This is how I shoot. I needed to be like this mentally. Like it has to be go with the flow. That's what trad archery is." It's like, well, if you want to be like that, cool, but. You're not, you know, like you could be a lot better. And That's why a lot of people struggle with trad is because they don't
0: sit down and put all the steps together. Don't put the science through it all. They just wing it. And they're like, well, this is what trad archery is, is winging it. It's like, well, it's
1: really not quite that way. Well, I think it's just like everything. There's a mad science to it. Yeah. It's like you can get into it as deep as you want to get into it in a sense. And. I think also, too, there's so much more information now that is available to people, you know, 15, 20 years ago before you had internet forums galore and, and stuff like this. You'd have to go to, like, a, a target archery school or, like, a, you know, one of these great 3D shoot like a Rick Welsh type of school to really learn the, the basic mechanics versus, you know, you give a, a kid a recurve or a longbow and it's like you, you watch them shoot and it's, like, 90% of the time they just pull that thing back with their bicep and their arms sticking straight out to the side of their head, you know? And that's just naturally the the way that the people would think to shoot. Um, I, th- I can't imagine like what I would be like if I lived, if I was born like three decades earlier than what I was born in. Cause I get so much of my knowledge and information from the internet. <laughs> I'm one of those knuckleheads that just
0: go out there until I finally figure it out. It'd take me a while, but I'd figure it out somehow.
1: I'm all about taking the sh- not taking the shortcuts because that sounds like a negative a negative term, but uh I like cutting the learning curve as as short as I can possibly make it while still learning the the basics. I feel like if I can understand why like if i if I learn a shortcut but I understand why it was a shortcut and what I would have had to learn otherwise. And I feel like I got at least enough of an understanding where it it probably doesn't hurt me to take the shortcut. The reasoning that made it a shortcut. Yeah. So if you can understand what made it a shortcut and why it was a shortcut, then it's like, okay, I get it. Speaking of the understanding of why, there was a guy that posted a video of an FOC, high FOC penetration test in ballistic gel. With the compound. It basically showed that it made zero difference whether he was shooting he had the exact same arrow weight, same setup, just one was like twenty something percent FOC, the other one was like twelve. And a lot of people got like bent out of shape about that video. But it's like you gotta understand like why does FOC help? It doesn't help when you have a compound shooting a perfect arrow at a perfect piece of ballistics gel. Like it helps once the arrow starts to deflect upon impact. If you got a trad bow and you hit a rib, or you're shooting at a slight angle, yeah, then that, that's when you start seeing the difference. It's not when you got a perfect arrow flying and like a perfect matrix or perfect gel.
0: Yeah, to me, FOC is more about you know the flight of the arrow and what can occur between point A and point B, than necessarily what happens once it hits the target. Um, because yes, heavy front of center will keep it from deflecting as much. As if all the weights in the back, but specifically the flight of the arrow. Um, you know, think about like throwing like a javelin. If you had a lot of weight up front, it's basically going to follow the head of that javelin. If the whole weight is distributed throughout the entire length, it may not fly as well. And then you start looking at you know wind drift and all these other things into it, and that's where the for me, I see the benefits of front of center over you know not having as much front of center.
1: Yeah, well, for me, the other thing I, I like about it too from a compound perspective where you probably wouldn't need it as much as you would like to have it on a trad setup, I like the fact that the more you bump up that front of center, the less fletching you need to be able to steer that arrow because of the increased lever arm. And I might not necessarily take that and say, oh, well, then I can shoot you know, three fletch with one-and-a-half-inch target vanes with broadheads Maybe it's I use the same veins, but now I just have that much more confidence that those veins are going to be able to steer that arrow that much more effectively. Yeah, exactly. Having that the the front
0: heavy head basically pull the arrow, and it follows that than to actually have to have the fletchings try and steer a complete lightweight arrow.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I like it. it it's just hard. It's harder to get there for a compound. With the arrow spines yeah. and the arrow weights, I, if I shoot feathers on my compound with a lighted knock, I'm sitting at like eighteen percent. If I go back to veins, I'm shooting like sixteen. It's like a horse a piece almost to me. I bet I'm trying feathers a little bit, but I'll probably end up going back to veins for the compound. At that percentage, it's not that big of a deal. Not that big of a difference. Yeah. Yep, it doesn't make enough, but I've, you know, with for me, with
0: a traditional bow, that's where I really learned about front of center and understood it and started to see the benefits of it was when I shot self bows, you know, shooting wood arrows, a lot of weight up front, and was like, man, why am I shooting so much weight up front? And then you put, like, a 125 on there, and then you shoot it, and you're like, okay. (laughs) Now I see why. Would you taper your shafts, too? Yeah. Yep, I bought taper shafts, so... And it was, that's when I begin to see, oh, and it's like, okay, why don't people use this in the compound world? And then it seems to me specifically like a lot in the past five years, there's been a real push for heavy front of center. And that's why I'm probably going to go to like a 50 grain insert with 150 grain broadhead on my compound. So I'll be shooting, you know, a 200 grain point. Um, you know because specifically now you pretty much dial anything outside of 30 yards with a single pin or with a three pin slider like I have so that trajectory really doesn't matter unless you're wanting to shoot to the moon and back Um, you know but for the most part most guys can't shoot accurately enough out to 100 120 yards so you know as long as you can get to that you're going to be fine
1: yeah, I mean, I'm already shooting 150 grain tips and 44 and a half grain insert systems of those Pierce Platinum, so I'm, I'm right there. The The thing for me, it's like I've looked at what it would take to get like a 25% FOC setup out of my compound and get the right spine and everything just using the calculators, which I've heard that once you get to a super, FOC, super high FOC, the calculators get kind of fuzzy and you actually have to shoot and see what you can get away with Yeah, because I've heard of guys like shooting like the bishop archery guy. He has videos of him shooting like 600 grain broadheads out of arrows that the calculators would say would be way too weak and they still fly fine. So, that's that's the one thing that I've found
0: calculators and spine charts are good for like 125s, maybe 150s. You get above that, you can throw a lot of things out the window because I've done pretty much the same thing. I mean, I've shot, you know, 250 grain points you know 52 pounds you know and I can shoot them out of a 400 spine arrow and look at the paper tune and I'm like uh I would think that would say weak but it's not saying weak what is going on here so how can I shoot a a 125 to a 250 basically off the same arrow and get the same spine results
1: Mm mhm yeah I can't remember who really started fish first pushing it on Archery Talk, but there's like a results-based tuning where it's like, it's kind of like you just got to try it and whatever works, it works. Don't worry. I mean, worry about why it works. It always helps to understand, but don't get caught up in the what should or shouldn't work. But that's, to me, that's the hard part about
0: trying to go to such hard arrows, high FOC arrow setups like this, is what spine arrows do I buy? Mm-hmm. You've got to have a gamut of arrows to test to say, okay, you know, this arrow full length is weak. This arrow full length is stiff. So now I know I need to be in this
1: arrow that's weak and can I cut it down enough to get there? Yeah, I mean, that's how I built mine. I used the calculators to start and I've gotten it tune well. I don't know if I could go heavier. Maybe I could, maybe I couldn't. Probably a good person to ask before you've spent any money would be that, the guy at Bishop Archery, just because he sells those broadheads up to 600 grains all the way down to 100. And I, I know he's tried everything under the moon because I've talked to him a couple times. He'd be a good person to ask. Um, but yeah, for me to get up to like 25% FOC with the compound, shooting the same, you know, draw length, draw weight, whatever, according to what the calculators say, I'd have to shoot an arrow that's like over 600 grains. Like 650 greens, which at that point, then the trajectory isn't worth it. If I'm going out west, especially. Yeah, I mean, back east, it's not going to matter. Right. But west, it would. And at that point, you're blowing through anything out east, with, regardless of whether or not you got a 25% or an 18% or
0: shooting a 70-pound compound a cut on contact broadhead. For me, all that, you're playing for that one worst shot possible that you pull left the deer steps whatever you hit the shoulder at that point right you know that's that's what all that is for i mean like you said it's not going to matter you're going to blow through a 130 pound whitetail pretty easy but if you hit that shoulder um is when you're what you're really prepping for basically
1: well at that point you're better off shooting a two-blade broadhead versus a three is going to give you as much advantage as a lot of the other changes that you would make i don't think i'll ever shoot a three-blade broadhead again
0: I'm a two blade fan and I'll stay that way. Cause it's, it follows the path of least resistance. So if it hits a rib, it will turn, you know, even if you look, especially like on the straight down shots, um, with the traditional bow. So back up my first deer I ever shot with the traditional bow is one of three deer that I've shot that I did not recover. Um, grunted him in. He was like seven yards straight down. Osage orange Jordan self bow. I thought, man, this is going to be awesome. It's like a 110 eight point. And I was shooting Zwicky broadheads that had the bleeder blades on them and shot this deer, and I literally got maybe an inch of penetration. And I was bum-fuzzled. I was like, what in the world? Why did this happen? So then I killed a deer a couple weeks later, and after I had cleaned it, I started looking, like, at the top where the spine meets the ribs. The ribs are only, like, seven-eighths of an inch apart. They're Mm -hmm. really close together on the back up there. And it got me to thinking how much force I needed to spread those ribs apart enough to get that two blade with bleeder blades through those ribs or to break those ribs. And that's probably ultimately what cost me that deer. Whereas if it would have been strictly a two blade broadhead, specifically a single beveled, that broadhead would have turned with those ribs, went in between those ribs. And I probably wouldn't have had any penetration issues
1: with that deer. Yeah. Well, what's what's interesting to me too, is that you're half colorblind. So, Half, I'm most of the way there. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to give you a little credit. No, <laughs> I, I I have one other friend who also is colorblind, and he loved. He was a, a two-blade guy. He just loved him, but he couldn't shoot him because he said he couldn't. He couldn't track his deer because you get such. Which you have a blood tracking dog, so that. That's why I got a dog, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like it, it doesn't matter. Like there could be no blood, you'd still find the deer. But like that's right. Three blade versus two blade you get a good shot, you're going to find it regardless. It's just going to be more blood with the three blade and yeah. you're going to get better penetration. I haven't quite gotten to the point yet where I've, I've used a two blade for my compound, but maybe someday I will just to give you that a little bit of extra. If you do it, cause I mean, man, some of those pictures of shoulder penetration tests with a single level and they just split top to bottom. It's pretty compelling evidence. It is. I mean,
0: I'm sold on two blades. I mean, I've got right now for the compound, I'm shooting the two blade afflictors. Obviously, they're mechanical. I wish they made them in a single bevel. Um, before that, I shot the Ulmer Edge, which was a single bevel. And then I've got some, um, I, th- I don't know that they were the bishops. Maybe they were like red feather archery. They're a two blade fixed head. And then before that, I shot the uh, NAP blood something, the kind of two blade that expands out wider. Yep.
1: So I have. So the single bevel broadheads that I have right now are. I have one from the Bishop, not their S7 tool steel, but like the mid range one, their Bridgeport, uh, which I think is like a 41L40 or something. And I also have the cutthroats, both the same size, both 200 grain head, single bevel. And the main difference between the two is that the Bishop is shorter and thicker and the, the bevel angle is steeper. So I think the, the cutthroat is more similar to like your standard Ashby, like 25 ish angle, uh, degrees. Three to one. Yeah. It's kind of more along those lines. Whereas the Bishop is like, you get faster rotation through bone. I think it's more, you get more of the splitting effect due to like the, the degree of the wedge. Um, and if you try and read through their website, some of that stuff is on there and some of the research they did, but for me, it's like, the thing I like about them is that they're shorter and they're thicker, which means there's less surface area for the same amount of grain weight of broadhead, which makes them a little bit more forgiving in flight. And I especially noticed that a little bit when I was shooting my bow out of tune, my compound with the, um, three blade ones, cause their three blades were also a little bit shorter and thicker. It's so like 150 grain three blade Bishop broadhead was less surface area than most hundred grain broadheads. And so when I switched from the VPA 150 grain non-vented three blade head going to the Bishop, I noticed I'd get less flyers. And then I tuned my bow and that didn't matter. They all flew well, but I kind of liked the fact that they were a little bit shorter and thicker.
0: yeah for a compound I like the shorter ones for a traditional bow I like the longer ones just personally Mm -hmm. don't know that it makes a whole lot
1: of difference but I I agree with what you're saying yes yeah I mean at that they're both really obviously good heads Um, all those brands I just mentioned I've been happy with every single one of them I think they all probably have lifetime warranties which is I don't think I'll ever buy another broadhead that doesn't have a lifetime replacement warranty just like What's what's the point, you know? I used it, uh, I used it on a Magnus once. I had a Magnus snuffer, and I shot a deer with it, and I screwed it back in and wobbled a little bit. So I sent it back, and I got a new one like a week later. It's like why would I ever buy a broadhead again that doesn't have a lifetime replacement warranty? That's but so Just convenient. go to
0: squirrel, mate. You gotta have some, something to shoot squirrels and grouse with. <laughs> yeah,
1: that that's. A You're good not point. gonna be shooting but, a high dollar broadhead
0: at a squirrel or a grouse. If yeah. it goes through a
1: deer, it becomes a squirrel, a grouse, groundhog arrow. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of it. Yeah, but I shoot, uh, I shoot those goofy looking small game heads at those things.
0: True. I just always used old broadheads that have been through, run through something before. I don't think I've ever used a broadhead warranty ever. I don't know that I will ever use one either.
1: Well, they have those cold steel cheap shot broadheads. I can't remember if that's the name or not. Uh, like the $1. Yeah, plastic. The $1 polymer broadheads, how do you like
0: them? Yeah, I I bought some of those at the ATA show, uh, was it last year, year before last? I don't know. Last time I was at the ATA show. It wasn't this year, so it was last year, 17 maybe. Uh, They're pretty sweet. I think they work well for that. I was hoping when I talked to them there, they said it might be a possibility, but that was a year and a half ago and nothing's come out. I was hoping they'd make some type of uh, small game head similar to like the G5 style or something like that out of the polymer because that would be just – awesome to me is you know oh, yeah a 50 cent small game head you know that would be awesome or even something like a hex head you know made out of polymer but it'd be hard to get the weight that they need because they're pretty i mean i think the 125 grain ones that i have are like three and a half inches long they're pretty long to get the weight yeah so. you'd,
1: you'd have to i work a lot with polymers at work you might be able to like load the polymer with some kind of metal to make it heavier denser but then you're making it more brittle. So there's there's some trade-offs yeah. that come with that. At a dollar a pop, I don't care. But yeah. If it gives me a shot, I'm good with it. I got to make some cheap squirrel arrows in general because half the time, it's like even if I got the small game head on there, it's like, oh, this is still like a $10 arrow. I don't want to lose it. I've, I won't take the shot. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. I remember when I was younger, man, I used to shoot like every dang squirrel that come hopping by. And I, uh, last time I shot a squirrel was with a wooden self bow arrow, and he turned around and gnawed that thing in half. And I was like, "Crap!"
1: So then I don't think I've shot a squirrel since. Yeah, I used to shoot. A, I've shot quite a few when I was younger. I've, it's been a while since I've actually, I've actually hit one. I've gotten really close a few times with the the recurve. <laughs> Just while I was deer hunting, I've I've got a few where I've gotten fur on the the side of the hex head. <laughs> Yeah,
0: no, I I quit shooting at him when he gnawed that arrow in half. Cause then I was like, man, that was a good arrow. Now I'm down one arrow, so not unless I can hit him in the head with a compound, I don't even don't even shoot at him anymore.
1: <laughs> grouse, we got some grouse where I started deer hunting last year. They'd make some some good shooting with the with the recurve or anything. To hit yeah, we've one. seen
0: we seen a couple elk hunting last year. It's like, hmm, too bad I don't have a grouse arrow. Mm-hmm.
1: I think we've chased enough squirrels in this episode. Yeah. I'm excited to see how that thumb shooting thing works out for you.
0: Yeah, well, we shall find out. I called uh, Rocky Mountain Specialty Gear today to see if they had some uh, cordovan leather that they would sell. I said they'd get back to me, but I didn't hear from them, but I called them at like 4 o'clock too. So. Did you check with the host? No, I thought about calling him too. If my dog hadn't ate my Yoast tab, maybe uh, maybe I'd have just used it.
1: If I would have been a little bit more controlled when I trimmed my Yoast tab down, I might have had some to send to you. But I trimmed off like an eighth of an inch at a time until I finally had the perfect length. Yeah, well, so that's the I best got way a bunch to do little it. Strips.
0: <laughs> that's the best way to do it.
1: But All right. For all you listeners out there, Make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on your favorite podcast streaming app. Leave a review on iTunes if you're so inclined. Bobby and I also appreciate it when you guys send us comments or questions via social media as well. You can find the DIY Sportsman on Facebook as well as YouTube and Instagram. Thanks for listening.